In the small French town of Arras, a young man stood in the rain on the side of the main road. Shivering from nerves and cold, he watched as soldiers marched towards him. Behind them, the royal carriage clattered along the pebbles, splashing mud on the spectators as it passed. The boy had been chosen by his masters to make a speech for King Louis XVI and his queen, Marie Antoinette. As the carriage pulled up next to him, he nervously began to speak. The king and queen remained in the carriage. They listened to a few sentences and then, without even acknowledging the boy, the king waved his hand and the carriage moved off. That boy was Maximilien Robespierre, and the next time he and Louis met, the king's life would be in his hands. Maximilien Robespierre, that's what they called him in France. He was a revolutionary leader. He became a lawyer. He was elected to the Estates General and became a prominent member of the Jacobin Club. He emerged in the National Assembly as a popular radical. He was known as the Incorruptible, and eventually his life ended in absolute misery. If you like that, that's because you probably already know something about Robespierre, but if you don't, don't worry. By the end of this episode, you'll know everything you need to know. This is Blind History. We're talking about one of the leaders of the French Revolution. I'm Gareth Cliff, my co-host, Anthony Meterer. Maximilian Robespierre, what a guy, huh? Yeah, and he's... Standing up for people's rights, he wants to educate the young, you know, so that they have a future. But then on the other hand, he went absolutely flippant blotto. He became a complete nutcase with the guillotine. Well, maybe the best place to start is with his funeral mask, which was made by the infamous Madame Tussaud, right? The one who's now got Correct. theme parks all over the world. And she would actually collect the heads of decapitated and important people. And she would make these wax masks, the death masks of them. And then she'd put them in her little gallery and people could come and pay money to see them. And we still do that to this day. And the the mask that she has of Robespierre was taken from his decapitated head. And it represents a not very attractive person, both in terms of his actual appearance and in terms of the way people feel about him today. But there are still people, it's worth saying, and you mentioned this in your introduction, Ant, that worship him in some way, that think he was a a man before his time. There are many people on the political left who regard Robespierre as being uh, truly ahead of his time and and, and thoughtful beyond words and uh, revolutionary in every sense of that word. But honestly, this guy was not destined for greatness at birth. And we can maybe start with his story in the little town of Arras in France, where he was born to a father who was a lawyer, but not a very successful one. He and his siblings were not very favorably looked upon by their father, right? I mean, he didn't have a great childhood. No, he didn't have a great childhood. And and, um, his mom died when he was six years old. You know, his sister said that, you know, the first six years, normal kid, uh, you know, was very bright, but also, you know, liked playing around and, and was quite fun. And then he just became very serious and morose when his mom died at six years old. And his dad was supposedly an alcoholic and he left them. He just disappeared. Yeah, he just abandoned them. And Correct, you, can, yes. you can imagine at six years old, that's going to have a lasting impression on you. So if he did end up being a crazy lunatic, as you pointed out, then that might be one of the reasons why. His dad left big debt. So that actually stayed with him, that shame that he felt for his father and the family. 
stayed with him. I mean, it was mentioned a lot of times to his close friends, and that could have also played some role. Now, there's a story about Robespierre because he was a smart child and he studied hard and he eventually went to go to the Louis Le Grand Lyceum, which is a school in Paris. But before that, at 12 years old, he was asked to make a speech to the king and queen. He clearly had skills in oratory. And he made his speech and the king and queen didn't even bother to get out of the carriage. He was splattered with mud. The king, halfway through his speech, gave the sign that he wanted to leave. And clearly that moment although Robespierre is the one who told us this story, it's retold in, in memoirs of him by people who heard it from his mouth. So we have no reason to not believe it. Clearly, the way he was treated by the king and queen made a lasting impression on him. And that might have been one of the reasons that he pursued a life after that, which was opposed to the monarchy in every way. I also think that the story sort of helps maybe join the dots a little bit, because in the time of terror, Anybody that looked at him skew would be guillotined. And he didn't start off as a politician either. He also wanted to go and practice law. And um, there were many things that put him on the back foot for much of his his 20s. He, he wasn't successful, and I suppose that reminded him of his father. But it does seem, as you indicate, that the guy had a very prickly self-confidence. He wasn't one of those people who could handle rejection very well. And all his speeches throughout his life he came out with a personal attack at somebody else because he took a lot of things personally. So a lot of his speeches weren't objective. I mean, they were, he was moaning and groaning. They were good. Some of the speeches were very good, roused the people, but you could see he took a lot of things personally. Well, maybe he also took things personally because he did look a bit odd. I mean, he was, he's quite tall, but he was very thin. He had pockmarked skin. He may have had other conditions as well, like perhaps an autoimmune disease. We're not sure, but people suppose that that might have been part of it. And this constant, never-ending suspicion of others. You know, they always say that the revolution eats itself. And Robespierre is probably the best example of that phrase. But when he did get into politics, it was exactly the right time. Because the 1770s, 70s, 80s, and 90s were the most amazing time in French politics. Especially if you were someone on the revolutionary side, because everything was in flux. King Louis XVI was running the place very badly. He ran it like a like a kind of family spazza shop, and he was borrowing money left, right, and center. The people had no representation, but they were being taxed to the hilt. And we don't need to go into a deconstruction of the whole French Revolution. But the fact is that Robespierre stood for election on the Estates General in the third estate, the first estate being the clergy, second estate being the nobility, the third estate being the common people who had to pay all the taxes. And he stood for his own hometown and he, he was elected. And he was part of the, I suppose he was part of the constitutional body that ultimately took the tennis court oath at Versailles when they were locked out by the king, that told the king he can't borrow any more money, they won't stand for it, that said they would disobey all the laws that were promulgated by the king and the legislature, and that until there was reform, they were going to be rebellious. You've described it actually beautifully in terms of the first and second and third estate because um, the third estate was just an add-on. There was no power and obviously most of the power vested in the king and he did use that. And what's very, very sad for me is the king and queen. And, you know, we haven't had a lot of successful Frenchmen in power. You know, it's <laughs> my opinion. But if you look at it, he was just, I mean, you could see the writing was on the wall that there was going to be some revolt. There was massive famine, droughts, so that what that does, 
especially in those days, bread is everything, grain. So the prices just shot through the roof. The people were angry, angry, angry. And he said, why are you making the law? They would ask him, well, because I'm the king. So he was on a very, very slippery slope. And exactly what you said, it was the right time for the revolution and for somebody like Robespierre to take center stage. And I think ultimately in the end, the third estate became the National Convention, which the king had to agree on. He did not want to, but he had to agree on. And I think that was the beginning of the end for the monarchy in France. Well, there are lots of different theories and people are still busy dissecting and dismantling the revolution to try and figure out exactly where it went wrong and where it could have been saved and where the king could have saved his own life. But there are a number of missteps and people have said that Louis XVI may have been not the sharpest tool in the box. I mean, he couldn't read the tea leaves. He just was unable to have any sense of reality while everything was falling apart around him. Ultimately, he was locked up with his wife. They were held up in the Tuileries. They tried to escape Paris. They were captured. Now, stupidly, on the way out of Paris, he thought he was home free. But before he left, he'd written a letter saying, ah, the Estates General are a bunch of morons and can't trust them and I'll be back, but I'm leaving. So they used <laughs> yeah. this- they used this as evidence against the idiot when they put him on trial and declared him an enemy of the state. But it was ultimately Robespierre who delivered the line, the king must die so that France can live. And that's probably his most famous quotation. And we know that yeah. it came from him. There were many others. He was inspired, of course, by Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Although, you know, listen, let me tell you, in this revolutionary body, among the leaders of the revolution, at some point they all loved each other and at some point they all hated each other. Mm. You know, there were people like um, uh, Marat, who died in the bath, famously. There were people like Danton, who changed his allegiance and was a, a Girondin in the beginning and then became a Jacobin. And then they changed back. And Now, he was interesting because he was really Robespierre's closest ally, and they fought together to the bitter end. And maybe at this point, it's worth saying that once the king had been executed, it was a bit of a shambles. There wasn't really any kind of authority. It was localized. There was a convention. There was the Committee for Public Safety, which is interesting because anytime anyone calls something a Committee for Public Safety, you know it probably means the opposite. And Robespierre put himself in charge of that for a long time and eventually the police as well. But there were military victories and those military victories actually worked against the revolution because the revolutionaries kept on saying to the people of France, listen, we have to consider the revolution as the most important thing because otherwise we'll be attacked by the Austrians or the British or the Spanish or whoever. And it turns out that the French military was still quite strong. A a young Napoleon was busy making his name in that revolutionary army. But inside the country, authority was falling to pieces and the revolution does eat itself. People were turning on each other. And Robespierre was almost like the Heinrich Himmler of the French revolution because he was obsessed with people who were counter-revolutionary, who were fighting for the people outside the revolution from within. And he was suspicious of everybody. The guy was probably one of the most paranoid people in history. And as you said said earlier, he would execute you for something ridiculous, like pouring wine that had gone off slightly. And there was also the famous trial by consciousness, which was absolutely crazy. However you felt on that day and what your beliefs were, that's how you could rule against uh, the defendant. So in the end, there was no law. I want to be fair because history is very unfair and history tends to cast people as villains or as heroes. And Robespierre must have been a very intelligent man. 
He must have made good arguments. He must have made terrific speeches. And during his life, I suppose from his point of view, he was trying to do the right thing. A lot of these revolutionaries were intellectuals. They had been put through the, you know, all the best possible schools and universities. They'd spent most of their life in books. But when it came to practically running a government, they didn't often know what to do. And because they came from humble beginnings, they weren't able necessarily to read the situation as it changed from a day-to-day basis. And I mean that with no disrespect, but Robespierre found himself eventually being the enemy instead of being on the side of good. And it was largely his own fault. He'd started something called the terror, where they basically went around just hacking off everybody's head. You could look at him skew and he would call you in and the Committee for Public Safety would just, without even a show trial, they'd just decide you were executable. It was the first time, and I think the last time so far, that terror has been used as an actual policy. It was part of the policy at the time of the National Convention to bring everybody in line. And he also famously mentioned terror is nothing more than justice, prompt, secure, and inflexible. So it was a policy, and it's never been done before since then. Yeah, I mean, it it was so unpalatable to the French people that they ultimately turned against him. In fact, the thing that really worked its most decisively against him was when he was suspected to be going through the committees themselves to look for counter-revolutionaries. And, and the people on those committees thought, oh, my God, I'm next. And that was when they decided enough with this Robespierre. They had a meeting where he tried to make a speech. He was shouted down. He and Saint-Just ran away and they, they hold themselves up in the Hotel de Ville, which is like, it's like the city hall of Paris. And inside of that, they started a gun battle with troops that came from various departments of Paris. Some were fighting for them, some were fighting against them, but ultimately it didn't look very good. I think what was massively in his favor is that, that uh, he came to power with the people and the people were always behind him. And as they started to see, I think another thing that really played against him was his, his beliefs on religion. That was just a little bit, you know, just too far, a step too far. He started talking about different types of cult and dioceses. They were atheists, he was saying, but he believes in a diocese. So people are thinking, well, the, you know, he wants to rule the country now as a virtual dictator, but also not only that, he also wants to play God. So the people started thinking, no, this is a little bit too far, you know. And and I think also just maybe more cynically, uh, they had to move the, the, the execution stage out of Paris because it was clogging up the waterworks with all the blood. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, this is how bad the terror was. And you're right to point out that he was the most powerful person in France at that stage. He really was ruling like a dictator. And a lot of even the poorest and simplest people were going, hang on a second, isn't this what we decided we didn't want? Um, so by that stage, it wasn't looking good. And while they were holed up in the Hotel de Ville, he and Saint-Just, they were busy fighting this gun battle. And either he was shot by someone who was on the opposing side, or he looked at the scenario and said, oh, this is not going my way and decided to commit suicide and, and shot. But he, he only managed to shoot off the left side of his lower jaw, which you can imagine was a very ugly scene. But we don't know whether it was suicide or whether he was um, he was actually shot by one of the people on the other side. Either way, he was uh, found and they took him to the Committee for Public Safety, put him on a table where he was half conscious and decided that they were going to try him. Correct. And, they, and they, obviously they had to strap him up a bit because his, his jaw was now hanging to the side. 
And so they took all his teeth out and then they, they put a big bandage around him and then he couldn't talk. And apparently after that trial, he was him and I think 21 others were going to be guillotined the next morning. And uh, he just sat in a chair quietly, couldn't say anything now because he couldn't speak with the bandage on and he had no teeth. You're like, this is definitely a very undignified end sure. to Robespierre. And he was the second last to be, out of the 22, he was the second last to be killed. And what happened was, obviously, the, there was a procedure here. They put people on carts. They took them off to the guillotine. It was in the Place de République where they, in, I mean, just a few years before, they'd executed. In fact, it was a year before that they executed King Louis the Sixteenth, And it was all very much a procedure. You know, it was quick. It wasn't like there was one execution a day. They were chopping off heads all the time. So you were all the people on the cart before him were put through the process. He watched their heads being cut off. He was second last to go up. And then apparently the executioner, just before they pulled the lever and the guillotine blade came down, it pulled off the bandage that had been holding his jaw in place. And obviously he screamed in agony. And it must have been horrific. And then moments later, that blade came down and just severed his head from his body. And then that, that at least silenced the screaming. I mean... Oh. You know, when I'm looking at Robespierre, I get that fear inside me. Imagine living yes. in that time. Uh, yes. First of all, you don't know if you're going to be alive tomorrow, number one. And number two, the death, the way you were taken out was frightening. And the guillotine was supposedly an improvement. It was the new technology that they were so excited about. You know, just taking the world forward. We can kill people quicker and with less violence. But I think the reign of terror really changed that. And to your point, you know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. A year before Louis the the 16th, who was the ruler of one of the greatest countries in Europe, was killed. And one year later, could he have pictured in his mind that he would have been on that same stage? Yeah, it shows you how the wheel turns in history. And and here we have this guy who you can still see that, oh, that, that pretty ugly face uh, from the death mask with those little piggy eyes and his pockmarked skin. And you imagine with that jaw hanging half off, what an ignominious way to go down. Sometimes I'm fairly and squarely not a revolutionary. And although people on the left have regarded Robespierre ever since as being a hero and someone who put forward the ideas of equality and fraternity and liberty, a lot of those ideas were imparted to him post his death. And, you know, many people have tried to romanticize the revolution, but and as you say, must have been a very, very scary time to be alive. You didn't know what would get you into trouble. There was a very capricious leadership and, and a very strange set of rules which kept changing every day. It's exactly the opposite of what freedom is meant to be. Because if you don't know what the rules are, how do you know what you can avoid in order to stay the executioner from yourself? And Robespierre himself learned that lesson the hard way. And also the hell, I suppose, everybody went through, from the royalists to the nobles to the common people and the clergy during that short period, they would have expected maybe there would have been, you know, freedom for the people and some stable future without a monarch. But what happened was there was a young general who was asked by the conservatives once Robespierre was there to clean up and settle the mobs down and that and became hugely successful. And he became probably one of the greatest I would say, leaders and dictators of all history. And that was just literally a few years after this traumatic time. Yeah, what a time. And Robespierre, one of the guys who's most interesting to follow. People seem to like the villains 
in these blind history episodes. So I think he's firmly in the villain category, even though his intentions might've been good from his point of view. And the world is better off without Robespierre. I don't know if it would have been better if he'd never lived because we learn from people like him. But certainly if you've got any ideas of revolution and you haven't read the story of Robespierre, you need to before you embark on your own revolution. And I know for a fact that Stalin did. And we know how that turned out. Exactly. At least he he didn't have his head cut off and his jaw shot off. So there he is, uh, Maximilien Robespierre, the uh, leader of the French Revolution, the dictator of France during the terror, and someone who met his end exactly the way he sent so many other people to their ends. What an awful, awful person. Uh, I'm just glad I'm not alive in the time that he was. One thing I really loved was you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. (laughs) That's That's fantastic. I like that. uh, Yeah. Sure. That's, that's quite something. I mean, that's also what Stalin said. He said, you know, in order to bring about the the revolution that we need, if we end up costing people their lives too bad, that's pretty much what he was saying. Yeah. And, and Thomas Jefferson said, you know, there's going to be a few people that fall off the tree and that's the manure that you used to grow. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh, that's awful. (laughs) So here we are at the end of another season of Blind History. Thank you so much for your support over the course of this season and so many amazing episodes about so many impressive people. I got to say, this has been uh, one of my favorite things about 2020, despite it being a very tough year. Learning about how tough it's been in history puts it all in perspective. And thanks to Anthony Meterer and the team at uh, Taylor Blinds and Shutters, this is uh, this is one of my highlights of the year, without a doubt. We've covered some amazing people. We've talked about some incredible events in human history. And we've even got a bonus episode, which you can hear. It's, it's out right now. It's a bonus episode with one of our favorite historians, Simon Seabag Montefiore. I know that was one of your highlights, Ant. That was 100%. You know, I think that we've got so much to be grateful for. When you look back in, in history and you see where we live in now, I mean, you know, the humans, I don't think, have ever been as, as well off as they are now. So I think this highlights a lot of that. I absolutely love all the seasons for that matter. But I really enjoyed season four. And thank you for your suggestions. We wouldn't have been able to put this season together without taking into consideration some of the really, really great suggestions from people who listen to Blind History. Make sure you pass it on to your friends and family, especially over the holidays. It'll give them something to talk about. It'll give them something to listen to. And instead of having to hear your aunt say, oh, why are you not married? Or why have you got only one child instead of two? Or why are you getting so fat? Let her actually learn something about history and put her onto this podcast. It'll, it'll change your life and hers. And maybe next Christmas, she'll have something useful to say. Or you can buy a guillotine. <laughs> Blind History is brought to you by Taylor Blinds and Shutters. All the episodes are available on the cliffcentral.com website and app, as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, it has to be said that both the king and the queen, and the queen died with dignity. King Louis the Sixteenth, they, they half chopped his head off, was hanging on the side, and then they finally killed him. And with Mary Antoinette, she, as she started walking up onto the stage, as you could call it, she stood on the executor's toe, and she said, so sorry, sir, I did not mean to do that. Whereas Robespierre, he had half his jaw hanging out and he had bandages mm. all over, and he screamed when they, they finally cut his head off. No dignity there.